Okay, we are gathered here this evening to discuss one of the great men of all of history. I choose my words very carefully. Many of you may think that you could challenge that statement, but certainly it's true that it's hard to exaggerate how great a man Maimonides was. Certainly to one degree or another, all of us has a certain sense as to who Haramba Maimonides was and you have to some degree some sense as to what he actually accomplished. However, it is no exaggeration to say that Maimonides really is greater than all that you think at this point. Maimonides was one of those people that was able to change the course of history. Maimonides was one of those people that impacted, affected, not only, of course, the Jewish people, but without exaggeration, one can say that Maimonides affected hundreds of millions of people to this very day, as you'll hear. Hopefully, by the end of the evening, you will get a clear sense as to who Harambam was, what was he really all about, and more significantly, why Harambam is that person who has to be, I would say, who has to be the model. We finished the class already when you weren't listening, so. <laughs> Harambam has to be the model for Jewish survival going into the 21st and 22nd and 23rd centuries. Again, I'll say that. And I'll stand by my statement. Maimonides is one of the great men of human history. And that is not an exaggeration. And that he's a person that has affected hundreds of millions of people. And that by the end of the evening, I hope that you will agree with that statement. Certainly, we all can agree that Maimonides is the most famous personality of all medieval Jewry. For the period of time of 800 to 1600, until today, he exerts, thank you, vitamin C I hope, but he exerts a powerful influence on world Jewry, and he has affected the development and history of Judaism as few other people have in the history of Judaism. Already in the 14th century, Rabbi Yedidia Pinini has said, there is no comparable sage among all the scholars of Israel since the completion of the Talmud. Which means that going back to the period of the Talmud, which was codified in the 2nd century, He's saying that in the last 1,200 years, there was nobody like Harambam. Similarly, Joseph del Megiddo said that there has not been a leader like him since the prophets, even more so. And everybody is, of course, aware of the very famous statement, the Moshe ad Moshe will come to Moshe. We all know that. From Moses until Maimonides will come to Moshe. No one has arisen as the Rambam. Even if one were to say that that might have been true as a medieval assessment of Maimonides, even in the 21st century, 
in reading one of the best books that there has ever been written on the Rambam, Marvin Fox's book, that along with Rabbi Trotsky's book, is considered to be classic works in Maimonidean literature. Marvin Fox will say that he, he is a, Marvin Fox is a PhD in philosophy. He's very well now, known in the philosophical circles. He taught both general philosophy as well as Jewish philosophy. And his word does carry some weight. And he calls him one of the greatest minds of all ages. So, lest we think that the Rambam was only great because he was Jewish. No, Marvin Fox said he's one of the greatest minds of all ages and one of the most profound interpreters of Judaism. One of the most profound interpreters of Judaism. Rabbi Tversky is a Tversky professor at Harvard for many years, also has made the point that there has not been a work written in the last 850 years in the field of rabbinic literature, which includes biblical interpretation, Pashanut, Midrash, Jewish philosophy, Talmud, or Shlotot response to literature, which effectively is close to um, 300,000 questions and answers were asked in the last thousand years. There are about 3,000 works of Shlotot response to literature, and none of this None of any of these works have been written without taking Maimonides into account. Which means that if you're interested in writing a work of Halakha, you're interested in writing a work of Parshanut, Biblical interpretation, you have to consult what Haramban said about that particular issue. You may disagree. Haramban is somebody who elicited, elicited incredible passion. There were those who considered him to be a great ally as well as their greatest enemy. He's the kind of person who whom everybody wanted to have on their side and yet also was able to evoke a contrary reaction. You may be surprised to hear that the Harambam's books were burnt because people were against his unique blend of philosophy and Judaism. Jewish people? Yeah, Jewish people. The church, as well as Jewish people. The church burned the books mainly because the Jewish people inside of the church do burn the books. One of the uh, horror stories of, of Jewish history. I was sitting in a rabbinical meeting about one week ago, and we were talking about a controversial rabbi in Deal, and, and I made the point that you're making statements about this rabbi, but people, as you, made the same statements about a thousand of the rabbi, they burned his books. And this rabbi, who was in the meeting, said, and we burned them again today. And I was shocked. That's why I said, wow. I mean, I thought there was nobody in this world that was just so foolish at this point in time. Now, we all know that after a thousand years, the Rambam is the Rambam. Nobody that stupid is going to burn the Rambam's books again today. And he's some of your rabbis. So, he's not in West Deal. Tell you that much. But he did, in fact, say, and one should be, uh, I was shocked. We should burn the book around again? I mean, I thought we learned from our mistakes. No, we should burn the books again. So, yes, we'll get back to that as we go along. So now, one can rightfully make the statement that a person in the 20th century about energy as after Harambam lived cannot call himself Jewishly literate without having some sense of who Harambam is, or at least having heard of him. Let's try to concretize that notion. Give me a, a modern equivalent. Fill in the statement. 
You are not to be viewed as literate if you never heard of Wow, you have high standards. Very good. Okay, I'll buy that one. Homer. Shakespeare. Homer. Doesn't television channel five? That same system? Oh, that Homer talking about. You think what's like you right now? You think that you're not literally you haven't heard of the Homer? You must have put you're putting nine percent of the human race into into Homer. He's talking about the Simpsons. What? Wow. Okay, you you're, you're much more literate in Brooklyn than I thought than in Deal. Anybody how about Freud, I thought you would say. How about Karl Marx? Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare's good. Okay, Shakespeare will buy. I thought we were talking about Rabinical. I just looked at Oh, Mark Twain. Okay, uh, Mark, I'm, I'm not sure if I was this. I would say that 70% Asian of, of Americans have heard of Mark Twain, I think. Mark Twain? Ever heard of Mark Twain? There's a movie Huckleberry Finn. That's got it. They made a movie of it. Right. Let's say, let's say uh, nobody made a mo- movie of that person. Romeo and Juliet, maybe? Shakespeare? Okay, so that's the point. Consider yourself educated. We all agree that you have to have heard of the Freuds, the Marx, the Shakespeare's, the Orthodoxics, the Homers of history. And the same is true for Maimonides. The same is true for Rambam. You cannot consider yourself educated unless you've heard, Jewishly educated, but you've heard of and know something about Rambam. Harambam was an extraordinary personality. Not only extraordinary of mind, which we'll come back to, and of course it's difficult for those of us who are not familiar with Jewish sources to fully appreciate his intellectual accomplishments. Fairly, one can say, was mind-boggling. But also he was more than that. It's his generosity of spirit, his compassion for others, his total dedication to the needs of his people. Concerned with the physical, intellectual, psychological, and spiritual well-being of his people. As for example, when the Jews of Teman were hated, persecuted, forcibly converted to Islam, Harambam writes to them what is a classic letter called the Gere Teman, around 1171, if not mistaken, and there, his role was not to be a philosopher, not to be a halachist. And it's interesting that he was able to be a compassionate comrade in arms, to feel their pain, share with them the, their agony, and to place that which they are experiencing into a broader historical context, which was not necessarily meant to be true, it was meant to be comforting. As a rabbi, one should be aware that you must wear different hats, different color yarmulkes. If you're in Brooklyn, it's black. If you're in Deal, it's black. Right? Different color yarmulkes. That means you have to be not only a halachist, not only a theologian and a philosopher, but your most challenging role, which you are least prepared for, is to share compassionately with those people who are in crisis. What an anomaly how rabbis are trained to be poskim, to know how to answer a halachic question. That's what you're trained for, mainly. And yet, what I've done more in 23 years of the rabbinate has been the pastoral role. 
And if you would have told me back there then that rabbis have to be pastoral personalities, I would say to you, I mentioned that. I'm not a naturally compassionate person. I'm not somebody who enjoys sharing Christ with people. Although I'll tell you that, in retrospect, it is the most satisfying and meaningful role that any human being, I would say, can play. What does that really mean? It means that you're visiting somebody who is deathly ill. And you spend 20 minutes or half an hour or an hour with that person. And you know you've made those last moments of life meaningful, significant. There's a smile. There's a cheer. You haven't affected the course of that person's illness. But you brought some kind of meaningfulness to that illness. It's an extraordinary feeling. And I don't glory in that. And it happens to me that's your primary role. It's your most meaningful role. I think I mentioned to you once before that uh, after my first time that I was ill, which was a pretty serious illness, I, had a, I was forced to go to a support group. Emily said, you have to go to a support group. And I said, I don't want to go to a support group. I don't need a support group. I don't want a support group. She said, you have to go. So I went. She said, I need it. So I said, okay, if you need it, I'll go. Right, it's a good wife. Good wife. And there's a table this large. There's 25 people in the room. Everyone is sharing their experiences of how they were ill, etc. You're a rabbi. What does that mean? Oh, you pray. Does prayer really work? Well, I'm here. I'm better. Yes, of course it works. It was very meaningful. Very special. All different religions, of course, were there. It was at Mammoth Hospital. And I said to them, and I meant this very sincerely, the, my closing statement was that I'm really happy I was this sick. They said, were you crazy? I said, no, no, it was really a very meaningful experience to me. They thought I was nuts. I said, no, I share, now I see, that I could empathize and share with people in a way that if you were not sick of this particular illness, that you'd be able to do. You could say, I've been there, done that. And you have credibility. Imagine a person that no longer wants to do chemo treatments any longer. And he doesn't. And I know why he doesn't. It's the most miserable experience you can go through. But you could say, been there, done that. And you could say to that person that you can get through this. And my crowning moment is I tell them that I've been through this thing three times and I run five miles a night. I think I'm crazy. You run, I run five miles every night, five nights a week. I'm halfway to Chicago by now. For the last year and a half, I've been doing that. Sorry? I did, yes, that's true. I want to get you exercising. Yes, very good. And it's, it's utterly incredible that they can look at you and say that you can do that. Say, yes, I could do that. And, the three, and, and, and a very moving experience I had, we had gone on a trip to Israel um, last May, and it was a headset trip with the IDF, etc. Some of us were with us there. I went to a hospital with children that had cancer. And there was one kid there. And we went to some people with kids. It's very sad, etc. And you really feel there's one girl there. The woman who had taken us around said, this is a um, 10-year-old kid, 12-year-old kid, and she won't open her eyes. She won't smile. She won't talk to anybody. Is a third occurrence. So uh, let me talk to her. And I sat with her about 15 minutes, and I said to her, I could run five miles. I am fine. I am well. I know it's rough. And the first time I said it, she didn't react whatsoever. I said it again in Hebrew. She opened her eyes. A small crevice of a smile broke out. And I said, We will be well. And that was it. So the truth of the matter is that that capacity 
for Harambam to have. He was not simply purely an intellectual. He was a pastoral rabbinic personality. We all appreciate him as for his great works and they should not be minimized. Your compassion is good for that time and moment. But Harambam's greatest, of course, his legacy, of course, is what he, what he gave us, of course, are his works. So we'll get to that. But I certainly want to emphasize that the pastoral role that he played as a physician, as one who had the breadth of heart in sharing the pain of others, is an extraordinary testament to my mind leads the man as well. It's always been interesting when David raised Rosalovetic. What do I see Rosalovetic's greatness in? Rosalovetic's greatness to me was certainly his brilliance. His ability to analyze, to conceptualize, to solve issues and problems in Talmudic literature that nobody else has ever solved before. To formulate human issues, human problems in a way that nobody has ever formulated them before and to discuss issues. And yet, what was, I think, more amazing to me is that when I read his writings, it's the poetry and the the human element, the human quality, above and beyond his power of analysis. It's one thing to be, to know everything, it's one thing to be analytical, it's one thing to be able to conceptualize, that's all fine. But to formulate a philosophical issue in human terms, to touch a human heart, I think is more significant. The ability to use your right side of the brain with it equally with your left side of your brain. The left side of your brain is your scientific part, the right side is your poetic part. Well, so they should mind was such that he was able to fuse these two sides and whether he spoke poetically or wrote conceptually and analytically he was able to touch the mark. The Rambam was the same. Interestingly enough both the Masalavechik and the Rambam shared a mutual universe. Both were loved by many and certainly both were condemned by many as well. Harambam, we already mentioned, maybe we'll come back to it. But in Rabbi Salavechim, whose brilliance was too overwhelming to completely ignore in, for example, the right-wing world, on the other hand, they could not fully take him seriously, because if they take him seriously, then why are we not like you, if you're that great? So they had to take him seriously, but they had to also deride him a bit, and keep him at an arm's length which I found fascinating. But great men are subject to these kinds of whims of history. Harambam is that person who not only wrote as a philosopher and as a halachist, but also as a compassionate, sensitive soul as well. In a word, Harambam was totally dedicated to his people, wherever they may be, to his service of God, and we'll describe that later on, and a very compelling personality. Now, certainly, you may think that I'm exaggerating. There's no need to exaggerate his reputation. It stands on its own. He is universally almost acknowledged to have been a commanding, perhaps the commanding personality of the last thousand years in Jewish history. And one should make the point that who was the most influential Christian theologian of the last thousand years? Aquinas. Good, St. Thomas Aquinas. And who was the most formative influence on St. Thomas Aquinas? Maimonides. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas, along with St. Augustine, are the two towering personalities of Christian thought. We know that. 
And of course, as such, St. Thomas Aquinas redirected Christian thought. Into what direction? What did St. Thomas Aquinas do for Christianity? Say the reasoning or something? Good. Excellent. Where were you educated? In the Bronx? I <laughs> know a little bit. I well, you know a lot of it. Not a lot of it. What did you say? Say the reasoning. Logic. Reason. He rationalized, quote-unquote, Christianity. Saying that one, in order to be a good practicing Christian, one must engage and one must use one's reason. Where did he get it from? Or better yet, he proved, in Adolf Aquinas, God's existence. His arguments for God's existence are virtually lifted from Maimonides. When I said earlier that the Rambam was one who affected, impacted hundreds of millions of people, I didn't exaggerate. Through St. Thomas Aquinas, he has impacted upon hundreds of millions of Christians. It's a whole new Christianity. Because St. Thomas Aquinas, and that Christianity was one that was impacted upon, strangely enough, surprisingly enough, by Harambam. Yeah? What was the point of St. Aquinas? But a hundred years later. Islam as well. Islam as well. Amazing. Great Islamic theologians gathered together to study Murayn Bukhim. Of course, you know, it was written originally in Arabic. And they gathered together as well to study the words of the great Maimonides. Amazing. There are even... Well, we'll get this later. Now, therefore, as a religious thinker, as a philosopher, as a Baal Halakha, as a man of his times, as a man who far surpassed his time, Harambam stands preeminently. Interestingly, many people stand above their times. That's true. It takes another quality of person, of mind, of heart, of soul, to go and stand beyond your times. Harambam was one who was not only able to take a thousand years prior to him of Jewish thought, and conceptualize it and formulate it in a way that was going to impact upon his own generation. He was a person who was able to take the same thoughts and formulate them in a way that was destined to impact upon the next thousand years of Jewish history. Harambam had what one might call historical awareness. Which means he knew that he was an epoch-making personality. He was able to foresee, to understand trends and currents. And he was able to make a statement that this book that I'm writing now is what it's going to be used. Decades, centuries, perhaps even millennia hence. He believed that when you have my book, Mishneh Torah, you need no other book of Jewish content. Well, they never burned. They never burned Mishneh Torah. First of all, only parts of Mishneh Torah, philosophical parts to it. They burnt Morena Bochin, number one, and that's interesting. They only burnt half of his literary output, not all. <coughs> you, could, you can't deny Mishneh Torah. It's the book. No other book, as this, was written prior to Rambam or after. No one ever even duplicate the Rambam's works. Period. 
There is no other book that was able to classify, conceptualize, and analyze Jewish law as Moshe Torah. There is no other book that is, is as all comprehensive as Haramban Mishne Torah. So nobody ever touched that book, except the philosophical parts, the first two chapters. And you may raise the question, what about Shulchan Aruch? Right? That's the book that we use more regularly than Mishne Torah. Well, the answer, of course, is, as we all know, Shulchan Aruch is only a partial statement of Halakha. Haramban Mishne is a total comprehensive statement of Halakha. Tell me, why Haramban insists upon writing about sections of Jewish life that were certainly not relevant. Give me one section not relevant, let's say, Korbanot. Shemitah v'yovel. Now you have to tell me why Hanamban insists upon writing about those sections even though they were not relevant whatsoever. Now there's a bad answer and a good answer. Who wants to be the bad answer first? That's what you can't, learn. You can't lose. What's the bad, what's the wrong answer, or the partially correct answer to that? Somebody might, you might need it in the future. That's the right. Good. Thank you, David. That's not the right. Thank you. That's correct. The better, the better answer is related to the rest. I didn't get it. He said because that the Mashiach is coming tomorrow, and therefore the Ram should write the laws of Mashiach right now. Or we may need Kobano tomorrow. So do you think that's why the Ramam did it? No. Thank you. Yes. Wait. Not good enough. Yes. One second. David. Doesn't matter. Good. <laughs> Joey. I think you wanted to put it down so no one would come up with some ridiculous things and, 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 and twist it all around. So interesting. Good. They did it anyway. They came up with the things no matter what. Good point. Good point. But not the reason. Can I redeem myself? Yes. Because he was a codifier par excellence and he could not leave anything on not good enough not good enough not good enough reasoning you're on the right track the answer is because truth truth is a whole and if you only have a partial slice of the truth then you really have truth that's disfigured obviously if you only know a little bit of Jewish law, then you'll only have a portion or part of the truth which is not <coughs> the whole picture, and it's a false picture of the truth. In other words, let's say you say, I only want to take one book of Shekhan Aruch and I want to be 100% Jew in that way. Whatever it may be. Right? I want to give tzedakah. So I'm going to follow every law of tzedakah. But I don't give anything else. What's the problem with that? you're missing the broader picture. Haramban saw truth, this is an issue of truth, as totally comprehensive. And if you miss any part, any detail, you miss part of truth. Now, here's the profound analogy to explain what I mean. You may not appreciate the analogy, it may go way over your heads, but you'll excuse it for. My profound analogy comes from high school. As a high school student, I was fascinated in love with who? Sherlock Holmes. Correct. Sherlock Holmes. To the extent where I took out Sherlock Holmes in September, I didn't bring back till June, and Birnbaum was very angry at me. He said, Ezra, I am so furious at you. I'm going to find you for this book. You're going to be fined one dollar. That was Dr. Birnbaum. He was a great guy. 
Very special. Alava Shalom was a very special human being. Now, so yeah, Lavash. So now, why was Sherlock Holmes so wonderful? Well, imagine the following. A murder was committed, correct? And you have a hundred details, right? Now, you have all the details. You create a scenario and you have discovered who the murderer is. For the crime to be solved, every detail has to be in its right place, correct? What happens if one little detail is not in the right frame? Then your solution is flawed, false, wrong. Did the butler do it? Well, the butler has an eight and a half size shoe. And everything else fits. He has the motive, he has the, the, the weapon, he had everything. But, the footprint outside the window was a nine and a half size shoe. So therefore the butler couldn't have done it. So your picture of truth as to who committed the crime is wrong because you don't know, the one detail does not fit in. So therefore, your truth is false, flawed, get rid of that whole framework and start all over again, putting every detail in its right, right place and when every detail is right, right place fits in perfectly, then what? You have truth. You know who committed the crime. Is that a good analogy? You make sense? I have a question. Decent? I deserve that. Thank you. Didn't the Rambam indicate that he didn't expect Torbanda to be restored? To be discussed next week. Next week, not this week. One second. Yes? So what are you saying that if you don't know everything, you can't know anything? If you don't know everything, you're missing details of truth. And if you're missing details of truth, you don't have the whole picture. Harambam had the whole picture. Imagine Mona Lisa without a smile. <coughs> Even Rambam doesn't show Korbanot in the relevant pictures. Korbanot's next week. See it to the truth. Next week, Korbanot. What you just made, your outlandish statement you just made, you better be here next week. Wait, see that? Imagine, that's a great statement. Imagine Mona Lisa without a smile. Imagine Van Gogh without an ear. That was very funny. With an ear. I know that. I think they're awake. Right. So my point over here is that any any detail is critical to the whole. That's his point. And Abba's point is that every detail, any detail, is critical to the whole view of truth. Harambam saying that Dat Elohim, knowledge of God, as represented by Halakha, you cannot achieve Dat Elohim unless you follow Halakha, and following Halakha means every detail. If you miss one detail, you do everything in Halakha, but you like to drink, trim cocktails. I hear they're really good. Anybody? Oh, no? You don't drink it. You don't drink it? <laughs> I heard. You heard, thank you. <laughs> Good, okay. So now, if, you, if you, you miss a portion of truth, you've disfigured truth, you've disfigured Mona Lisa, and therefore, what do you really have left? So therefore, Harambam, as a manifestation of Dati Lokim, or of truth understood, that you have to have the whole picture. And therefore, you cannot write a Shekhar. What would Harambam say? The next name is heretical. So, turn off the tape. No, it's okay. I'm only kidding. It won't be that bad. Actually, maybe. I don't know yet. We'll see. What would Haramban have said about Shulchan Aruch's work? Let's say, those of you who know Halakha, Haramban writes the Torah. And with all its unique characteristics. And... You're about to understand. Pause it.
One of the great historical, one of the great historical games to play is a what if game. What if Harambam was around when Shahana? Harambam is an epic making personality who was aware who was aware that he was an epic-making personality. He knew himself what he was creating for the future. Who was Hanambam? Born in Cordoba, Spain, at the tail end of the golden age of Sephardic Jewry, which was perhaps the most creative period of, certainly, of Sephardic Jewish history. You're not going to find any other period in comparison that produced Ibn Gabriel's works, for example. Ibn Gabirul, a genius in his own right. Ibn Janakh's grammar. I can find any other period that compares to the golden age of Spain. Harambam comes at the tail end of this period of Spain, born in 1135, 1138, and dies in 1204. The Muslims, as a rule, appreciate his talents and his genius. However, in the 1160s, a fanatical sect of fundamentalism of Islam, known as the Amwahadis, swept across North Africa, taking control of the Muslim Empire. The Amwahadis, Amwahad, the unifiers, came to the people of that world and said, either you believe in our religion or death. They believed in the unity of God, and they banned all other forms of religious worship. Choice is given, either convert to Islam or die. Harambam and his family fled at that point the Spanish Peninsula. Thousands of Jews at that point converted. Harambam was very sensitive to that issue. How do I know Harambam was very sensitive to the issue of forced conversions? That's one of the three uh, forbidden, uh, what do you call it, uh, that you have to die rather than convert. Okay, good. But elaborate. Or, how do I know this is critically important to Harambam? Okay, good to have him later. He received letters from rabbis who asked him specifically about Yeah, that was later. Correct. That's again Shema. That was later. The answer is, In the fundamental principles of Torah, the very opening chapters of Halakha deals with this issue, fifth chapter. Right? In other words, Harambam is saying, chapter 1, and Harambam, again, compare Ricky Grazi, compare the opening of Ibn Sefkaido's book, Shukhan Ruch, compare Harambam. And let me know which one makes more philosophical sense. Right? Which one actually corresponds better to who we are as 21st century people? Right? Which one is able to formulate for us a philosophy of life? Which one begins appropriately with proper principles and then carries on? Right? The answer is Harambam. So the very first section talks about God's existence. How are you doing Jewish law without an awareness of God's existence? Harambam begins with God's existence. His opening statement is, Yesod Yesodot, the Amud Amudim. The most basic principle to know about is God and the nature of God. Right? Why talk about doing Halakha? But you talk about God first. Talks about God. And then chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and then chapter 5, goes to the Torah, talks about Kiddush Hashem. Are you willing to die for this God of Israel? And Anabam lived that question. So therefore, he has to give you the laws of martyrdom. Laws of martyrdom. What and how important is to you 
this philosophical principle called God. Now, if you're not willing to die for God, then you're not really following what Torah wants of you. Harambam, therefore, in the fifth chapter, the Surah, is telling you that you have to be willing to die for this God under certain circumstances, as Phil pointed out. You should commit yourself, martyrdom, for the right religious reasons, the right halakhic reasons. So Harambam himself experienced this, was aware of it, knew that it could happen at any point in time, you may be asked to give your life to your religion. Harambam, uh, interesting question, to what degree did Harambam know about the Crusades? The first Crusade was 1096, right? 1096. Mm-hmm. And of course many Ashkenazic Jews had to give their lives or convert to Christianity. 1066. Right? 1096 First Crusades. 1096 First Crusade. 1096 First Crusade. 1067. 1096, remember that? No. 1096 First Crusade. It was towards the tail end of Rashid's life. Rashid lived from 1040 to 1105. Correct. And at the very end of Rashid, 1096 was the first. It began, the preparations probably began decades earlier. 1090, 1080, 1070 is when the preparations of the First Crusade the call for Pope Urban II. Was, I think it was Pope Urban II was he who proclaimed that crusade. So it might have been earlier, but the first crusade actually took place in 1096. Right? So now, in that, I don't know to what degree Hanabam knew about the first crusade. Did he know about it? That that was a constant awareness of Ashkenazic Jewry. Similar to, it was an ongoing event of Ashkenazic medieval life that around the time of Easter, Christians would put on a passion play, which of course often led to the death of hundreds of Jews. Right? The masses would be stirred up and they would go find some Jewish community to slaughter. That was life. That was life in the Middle Age period of time. Passion play, contemporary issue, worry about. I'm talking about America now. <laughs> you know, Mel Gibson. Yes. <coughs> that was Europe. Right. Uh, so now, yes. Quick question. Uh, does Abraham know anything about Rashi? He doesn't mention him. Rabbeinu Abraham, Rabbeinu Abraham, the Ramam's son, yeah. in his huge commentary on Bashin Shemot, mentions Hatzar Fatih once. Hatzar Fatih is the Frenchman. Mm-hmm. Now, who is that? We assume it's Rashi. He didn't say something complimentary about. Are you surprised? Of course not. Because even though Rashi became what's known in the scholarly literature as Pashandata, the Pashan par excellence, you have to analyze why did Rashi become the commentary of the Jewish people? Because of his lucidity, simplicity, all those reasons. Harambam's works are not characterized in philosophical works by his simplicity. He wasn't writing for the masses in his philosophical works. Rashi was. Rashi's brilliance and genius was able to write clearly and lucidly and really hit the nail on the head in his biblical commentary. Rambam, one would think, is not going to appreciate that. Ibn Abraham certainly did not, because he says it very clearly. He did appreciate Ibn Ezra. He did appreciate Ibn Abraham. He did appreciate the Uncles. He did appreciate Al-Khof Nigaon. All that he appreciated. But Safati quotes him once and just dismissed it. So, the Frenchman said, and this is worthless. So, presumably, Aramam didn't pay too much attention to it. If the son knew better, I assume the father did perhaps. In my recollection, Aramam does not mention that she in any of his works. 
Wait for that reason. Good. Okay, now. So Rambam then runs away from Cordoba, Spain, travels, spends some time in Fez in Morocco. Yeshomrim, some say that he feigned conversion to Islam. Some question that particular fact of history. Not bought for us. He traveled to Syria, spent some time in Syria, and Israel, and finally, of course, settled in 1165 in Egypt. And there he spent the rest of his days, till 1104, as a court physician to Salah al-Din, to the Sultan of Egypt, was committed as a community leader, as a prolific author, under some of the most difficult circumstances. Interesting is that when Haramban got to, got to Egypt, he was proclaimed immediately as Ras al-Yehud, the head of the Jewish people, although he was challenged at that point in time, by a certain Sarzuta for political reasons. He wasn't, he wasn't the Harambam in those days, and he was actually swept away from the authority of Ras al Yahud, and he spent the next 20 years to 1191 not as the head of, the official, I should say, political head of Egyptian Jewry, but that gave him the opportunity of writing Mishnah Turan, Moreen de Bukhim which is wonderful, and only in 1191 did he become the official head of Egyptian jury. Good. Now, let's try to understand a little bit more about Harambam, not as a man, but rather as an intellect. Right? He actually wrote three critically important works that, again, a literate Jew should be aware of, and I will argue that, a little, that we as Jews need. But, what should be the first work that Hanambam should write? What's the first work that a man of this stature, a man of this nature, should write? What's the root of all thinking? Who? What? Don't be afraid, I don't jump on anybody. I really too. I know I do. I do. You're right. You're a smart boy. I get a little too. Uh, and we get. Every time I do things like that. Wrong. The first work you need. What? I wasn't. I wasn't. That was nice. Something on the Italian mitzvot. Not yet. A work of logic. I need sorry no exactly that what are the canons of truth in philosophical terminology we call it epistemology from the Greek word how do you know what you know do you all think that you should trust your sense perceptions do you, naive no you don't trust sense perceptions you don't, you don't know that I'm here right now you, you perceive me you think that I'm here you may wake up tomorrow morning and find this to be a horrible nightmare. Yeah, it may be the case. Now I, I have to come again. Maybe another nightmare again. That's what's that called? The groundhog? Groundhog, groundhog there, yes. Again? I can't come again. Please, don't wake up tomorrow. I'm here now. It's better that way. Much easier. It's epitomized in that song, Do You Lie? Did I actually swim in the Kinneret, or was it only a dream? Or only a dream, right, right, right. Lai Lo Hayu has a dream. Lai yeah, it's a beautiful song, yeah. The Ultimate Gayon is a work of logic because one has to establish what truth is first, and how do you arrive at truth? What's the point of writing any other commentary, any other work, if you don't know what's true? 
So it was a 17-year-old. Harambam wrote, which of course, it's not today, it was written in, uh, in Arabic, but of course it's translated, a work of logic. One has to be convinced of the truth of one's statement in whatever field it happens to be. And what determines truth? It's logical, it's coherence, it's consistency. It all has to come together as a truthful statement. Otherwise, it's false. So Rambam's first work is a work of logic. 17-year-old. Still in use today. To know what you know is true. Sense perception or, let's say, that which is deduced from logic. Harambam is so careful of a thinker. He has three distinct words which conceptualizes and epitomizes the statement. He'll tell us that Ilim in Arabic is that which is absolutely true and one cannot dispute it. Give me a statement of Ilim. Try. I'll be nice. You're no. No. Thank you. All bachelors are unmarried. Did anybody ever hear, see a married bachelor? No. If you make that statement, I say you're false. You're illogical. You cannot be a married bachelor. Anybody ever see a square circle? No. It's got friction in terms. That's Eilim. Better. God exists. Is that Eilim? Absolutely yes, according to Harambam. Absolutely. More than in part two, the first 20 chapters, so about Eilim. On the other hand, you have Eitekad. Eitekad is what you might call deduced truth. Where there's smoke, there's fire. I smell smoke right now. Is there a fire? Maybe, if I smell it, maybe not. Maybe I'm smelling something imaginatively. Sense perceptions are not necessarily true. You could have a mirage. Mm -hmm. A figment. I may be a figment of your imagination this evening. Sorry? If only. So that might be the case. So Aitekad is only to deduce truth. And Amanat is pure belief. Pure belief. Those who study the 13 principles of Haramban should be careful and note, whereas the first three are Elim, knowledge, pure and simple. The next four, if I remember correctly, are Artekad, derived. Nivuat Moshe. Is it Elim or is it Artekad? Or Amanat? It's Artekad. It's derived. Why is it derived? Because we only know it from tradition. We know it from tradition, therefore it's derived. On the other hand, Yemotah Mashiach, Tehatemetim, the other last three principles of Adam Balfour are beliefs. We believe them. But you can't prove them. They're not nor Atekat. So Adam Bam is so careful in his terminology. He's a precise thinker. His work on Milte determines what is true. And one cannot write anything else unless one knows how to arrive at truth. Do you trust your senses? you trust your reason? How do you arrive at truth? So his first work, of course, is this work on logic. However, his great fame does not rest on this work, rather on his three other works, which have an enduring quality to them, which are relevant to this very day. Classic works. Now, I'll ask you the question. What makes a work classic? 
if we could think of other works that are classical works. Universal. Good. One might be its universal quality. What else? Good. Internal. Acceptance. Why? Everybody may miss the quality of your work. You have to be accepted. You can think of uh, many words which were first banned, let's say. Some great stuff, <laughs> classic, I mean, let me, classic, I mean an enduring work. Timeless. Right. Somehow it captures certain truths about society, about human beings. As such, it becomes a classic. I was reading an article by a reform rabbi. They both for that one. And he was talking about Rabbi Soloveitchik's works. And this is, his name is Arnold J. Wolf. He was the... Um, Chaplain at Yale at one point, and he said, in reading Rabbi Soloveitchik's works, I suspect, quote, that this work will endure and be around for the next thousand years. Now, why do he say that about Rabbi Soloveitchik's works? Why do he say that? I read, he read, and I think he's right. But why would he say that? Because when you read the works, it captures a portion of spiritual life that is going to make sense. Now, and the next thousand years. And Arnold J. Wolf, as a reform rabbi, sensed that, understood that, intuited that. That this work is just so meaningful to me as a human being, that the next thousand years is going to be human beings, and that work will, in fact, impact upon that person. That's a classical work. You read The Lonely Man of Faith. You read Ishalacha of Rabbi Soloveitchik. And you say, yeah, this one captures me. I read the Lonely Method at least five times. Could I read it a sixth and seventh time? Yeah, absolutely. Why? It just speaks. It just seems to convey a truth about life that seems to be so significant, so relevant, to want to read it again. One may go further and say that a classic work is not only, let's say, enduring, not only, let's say, that it's meaningful and relevant, it's also what one might say is endlessly repercussive. What does that mean? Endlessly repercussive. As you read it again, there are new insights that you get from it. You read it, and then you read it again. And you see different nuances. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Is it not a classic? Harvey's a classic? Yes? Now... Why is it a classic? Now, you have to be obviously musical to know about this, right? But you hear things the 15th time that you hear it that you didn't hear the first 14 times. And what happens when you hear it 20 times? There's a new, some kind of a new note, a new configuration of notes that does spell that work to be a classic. So now it's 20 years old, 200 years old, you're still listening to it. Why? Will the Beatles be here another 500 years? 5,000. They will? <laughs> I don't like the Beatles. I don't think so. There it goes. <laughs> now that's heretical. That's it. That's the end of the story. <coughs> think of a classical movie. Give me an example of a movie that's a classic. I didn't like that at all. I hated. I hated Gone with the Wind. Is that the Godfather? 
Casablanca. I didn't, I didn't see that. Rain didn't Rain see Rain. it. I love that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say The Wizard of Oz. Yellow Submarine. What makes The Wizard of Oz a classical movie? It's a 60, 70. Which, what do you mean, children? Why is it timeless? Technical. Make believe. And, and therefore, what happens in make believe? The good wins out over the bad, the witch is melted, and there's no place like home. Do you cry every time you see it like. Me? No, you don't get to play this? Good. So, um, for some reason, a classic speaks to you. You could see it again and again and again, and you know about it. And, and those kids, children, can see certain movies a thousand times, and they know the ending again. Why? Because it speaks to them. Classics have an enduring quality. They see things in it, and it just touches upon universal themes. Good versus evil. In the Wizard of Oz, uh, Gone with the Wind. What's it about? What, why is it so good? History. It's because it's history. Mostly. Okay. I don't know. Scarlett O'Hara. I don't know. Red Butler, Rabbi. Red Butler. Mark Gable. That's a woman talking. I got it. Clark Gable was in that movie. I don't. I, I, I'll tell you when I was when I was watching I was running so I didn't, maybe I didn't get it. No, I, could, I mean that's true. That's true. Five miles. It's a long time. Okay, so Harambam's works are remarkably comprehensive, creative, overpowering monuments to his ongoing commanding influence. These works have guaranteed, interestingly enough, and have generated. Endless commentary. Mishneh Torah has, I think the number of the last count was a hundred commentaries, super commentaries on Harambam's Mishneh Torah. There is no question. Rashi also, Rashi's work also generated hundreds of commentaries on it. As simple as Rashi is, it has generated more and more commentaries, which is interesting. So it's a very simple work. Pasuk, interpretation, and story. Why has Rashi's work generated endless commentaries? And so too Harambam's Mishneh Torah. It has been a work which others felt the need to comment upon. His sources, his meaning, trying to solve contradictions is also endlessly fascinating in Harambam. Trying to solve his formulations. Where did he get it from? Good. So now, all serious students of Jewish law take Harambam's Mishneh Torah seriously. One cannot move without Mishneh Torah. Nobody's forsake a question without studying Mishneh Torah. Here's a work that has been annotated and interpreted and translated. To this very day, works are churned out on Harambam's literary output. Good. Now, let's go further. His commentary on the Mishnah was written while he was still in his 20s. He took the entire corpus of the Mishnah and commented upon it, explaining its contents. The, its contents, the working, the workings of the Mishnah on a line by line basis. Now, let's try to go one step further into Mishnah Torah, which is hard to explain. You have Talmud. Talmud. Let's say you have Shishim Masechtot. You have sixty Masechtot. In each of these Masechtot, because it 
reproduce a classroom setting, there are multiple areas of Jewish law in each Masechet. We all know that. Which means if you open up Masechet, let's say Shabbat, you're going to find the laws of Hanukkah. Right? Have that happen. Have it because some student asked the question. You're talking, Rabbi, about lighting a candle on Shabbat? I wonder about lighting a candle on Hanukkah. Right? Okay, that's one example. Or let's say, for example, Mu'ayyad Katan, which talks about Mu'ayyad, has the laws of Avelut in it. And so on. One can find the details of laws over here or over there, any place in Shas. Scattered all over. So Harambam first knew all of these laws, to know all the laws and details of laws is a feat in of itself. And then he arranged and classified this whole vast system of Jewish law into 14 classifications. How do you do that? Yes. And no word processing. And no word. Right. It is amazing. To know all of Shas, it's there someplace, right? To know all the details of law by heart virtually, and then to take out the details and to classify it, or better, to analyze it. Where does this detail belong? And then to conceptualize it into 14 holes, 14 separate sections. Right? So to classify, to analyze, to conceptualize all to 14 distinct areas is a work of genius. Is there anything missing? No. I've never seen anybody do that. No. Is, is it known if he wrote it sort of linearly? He just started at the beginning and he just went right through it. Did he go back and compile things and say, I forgot something else? Did we don't know. We don't have any earlier formulations of it. One could study Abin Abraham, his son's work. He has two works on, called Birkat Abraham and Maaseni Sin, where he deals with questions that were raised on Mishneh Torah. Questions were raised on it. It didn't have immediate acceptance for many reasons. One is that you, didn't, you put philosophy in it. Who wants philosophy in the code of Jewish law? It was challenged. Two is you didn't write your sources. Who the heck do you think you are to give me a code without your sources? If you're following some source, I want to know your sources. Who are you? Now, subsequently, he who said, who are you, is eating his words. Because the Rambam is, as history has proven, the Rambam. He doesn't have to use his sources, to list his sources. I have a technical question. Please. How did this, this is, you're talking about a time before the printing yeah, absolutely. 14, 14, uh, 40. How do people know about what was... You wrote. They just... You wrote and you spread the word. When you were 17 years old? That was Moteh Gilion. Okay, but even later, how did they disseminate all... That's a good question. You're right. It's that people wrote. We have letters that the Hachmer um, Lunel, the rabbis of Provence. Provence was an interesting place in southern France. And therefore had the influence of northern France, which is Rashim Balesa Safot up north, which was kind of fundamentalistically inclined, as we all know. And then he also had the influence of northern Spain, right? Southern France had the influence of northern France and northern Spain. And therefore, Khmer Provence, Razak was from Provence, and he was one, and the Meiri, which one, they, they combined the traditional world of northern France with the radical, intellectual, philosophical world of Spain. 
and they wrote to Rambam, we heard about this great book called Mulein Debuchim. Could you translate it into Hebrew that we could understand? We don't understand it in Arabic. So we want to read more of, this, more of your works. So they heard Jewish courtiers, Jewish uh, people went from place to place. And his reputation was such that even in his own lifetime, he was Harambam. He was great enough to have his books burned. Even in 1191, they had issues about the Rambam's works. The Maimonidean controversy, which took on its own life for 300 years afterwards, he was, the first was in his life as well. 1191, he was challenged for not believing in physical resurrection. And therefore, the last work that he wrote in 1194 was his Maimonidean I believe in physical resurrection. I believe, I believe, I believe in it, I believe in it, I believe in it. Does that, that mean that he really did? I'm not going to comment on that <laughs> at this point. Sorry? It's a very important question, but we won't get to that right now. It's a very important question, but it's another issue. Maybe next week we'll talk about it. So, it was simply disseminated. Before printing presses, before fax machines, people heard of Harambam. And many had handwritten copies of his works. Right? Good. Now, so his arrangement, classification, based on his analysis and conceptualization of Jewish law, were unique. Nobody prior to Hanambam ever or afterwards tried to do this. Right? His comprehensiveness was amazing. His style of expression, his language, all labeled this work a classic. With all of that, this work is what we will call sublimely simple. What does that mean? That almost anyone can understand all the Snobet Jewish law by studying that chapter. You read Hanambam on this issue, you have the right blend of history, theology, philosophy, and halakha. All in five or eight or ten chapters. It's extraordinary. All there and clear. You believe all you have to do is listen? Read my book. Isn't that obnoxious? I mean, doesn't it sound... I don't understand. It, it, it's self-awareness. It's a great word. It's embarrassing. I'm sorry for asking you, but it seems like it's, it's very obnoxious. That's a, it's the wrong word. I it's mean, confident. Is the right word. Okay, but... He said, and then, I'm writing the work. And, he's, and it seems like he's writing for, for people that are more educated. No! He's writing for every Jew. Yeah. Mishnah for every Jew. Okay. Every Jew could open up Mishnah Surah and get all of Jewish law. He's writing for every Jew. And you can have the other mean by going through by, the whole yes. by knowing science and by knowing about this, by not, you know. He gives you the exact blend. Good. Gives you the exact blend of what you have to know about science and everything else in order to achieve what he thinks you have to achieve. Mishnetsura is a all all encompassing comprehensive work to achieve what you have to achieve. And he, of course what is he ended on? What's the very end of Mishnetsura? The last line you should be aware of. It's one of those bits of Jewish knowledge you should be aware of. Helchot Melachim, which talks only about the Mashiach. And what is what is the opening line? You saw this story about God. And what's his last line? Pasuk from Yeshayahu. No. Kayam Machasim. Right. Now that knowledge of God, Yeshayahu Perek Bet. This is Perek Bet. That the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God, will ultimately spread over the entire earth as waters cover the earth. That's his last line. Right, so he goes through the whole Jewish law and you end up with a statement about God and you end up with a statement about God after all of this. So yes, the answer is he has 
sublimely simplify all of Jewish knowledge. Go through Adamban. Ironically, the Babacha Rebbe had said years ago, he wants to bring Mashiach. How do you bring Mashiach? Every Jew has to read Harambam. One paragraph a night. And they have actually a siyum. Every, I don't know how many years it is, the Babacha have a siyum in order to finish Harambam. And that he thought was going to bring Mashiach. Did you say it's more important to study Mishnah Torah or Mishnah Torah? I mean, Mishnah Torah, hands down. Yes, me. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you can't be too far off the mark. I mean, Adam Bam didn't include Ashkenazi Poskim, etc. Nor did Aruch, Ramah did. Depends on your philosophy of Psaq Halacha. I mean, I, I enjoy reading Adam Bam. I don't, <laughs> yeah. Did Rambam prove the existence of God or attempt to do that? He did it. Oh yeah. I, I mean, how do you prove the? Exi- I mean, uh, another class. Um, it's supposed to be. Uh, there are three proofs: the ontological, teleological, and cosmological. So Rambam used the cosmological and the teleological proof of God's existence. He did not use the ontological. No Jew did. Only Saint Anselm did later it's on. Supposed to be a matter of faith. You can't. No, prove. it's proof. Everybody proved that. No, everybody did it. What do you mean? Everybody did it. Yeah, and no, everybody did do it. Up, up to Emmanuel Kant's time, it was done on a regular basis. And today, there are, there are professors of philosophy who prove it as well, who believe they prove it. Charles Hartshorn is one of the, um, I think he just died at 91, 92 years old, was one of the last of the philosophers, second philosopher, says, I've proven God's existence. So that's it. Okay. Please. Besides Aristotle and Plato, which we know that he read, because he quotes him when in the Mukhim, he tell, it talks, tells us that his teachers, probably his father, doesn't quote him all the time, um, his grandfather's mentioned once or twice, the Rimigash and the Rif, and the Geonim, but he's critical of the Geonim as well. So, his education was from his father, probably, mostly from his father, and, and those, he doesn't really mention it as, um, as a, any formative influences. Uh, self-made, self-taught, self-taught. Okay. Sorry? Self-educated. Yeah. I mean, so he had his direction from the Rimi Gash and from the Rif, you know, those who were the great Amodeh Hora'ah, they were, but um, beyond that, he doesn't tell us. Beyond that. Okay, good. So now, Harambam was able to incorporate all of Jewish law, of all those Yeshima Sechtot, putting it all together without subverting it. It was simple, it was clear. In this case, his genius was in taking an enormous amount of material and simplifying it for the common person without being simplistic, without trivializing it, and without sacrificing any of its integrity. Here Harambam brought to the entire corpus of Jewish law an emphasis on the logic of the law, not simply a series of statements, but the logic of the law and the spiritual and ethical and rational components of the law itself. Good. Harambam would not want you to observe Jewish law mechanistically or mechanically. He would want you to feel the spiritual and ethical and religious power of the law itself. The law is a pious expression of God's will, and it's that which you should feel when you are practicing the law. He brought the law philosophical elements, which sought to explain the rationale behind the law. Hence, in Mishneh Torah, which you'll see next week, is 
a large degree of Ta'am and of the reasons for the commandments. Of course, his fullest expression of Ta'am and is in Morei Nebuchim. Most of Morei Nebuchim, one can say, or at least the largest body of comments, is on Ta'am and It was that important. Part 3, chapters 26 to 49, all deal with Ta'am and Right, the reasons for the commandments. Because on a moment reason, how could you do the commandments without knowing the reason behind it? It's an absurdity to do that. Harambam would want you to know the Tama Mitzvah, even as he would proclaim that if you don't know the Tama Mitzvah, still do the Mitzvah. He would not say, only wait till you know the reason that I want you to do the Mitzvah. No, do the Mitzvah. But equally important is the Tama Mitzvah. You must know the reason, because a mechanistic doing or performance of the commandments without knowing the Tama Mitzvah would become spiritless will become meaningless to a person. You have to know the Tama Mitzvah, and that we spend the closing chapters of Morei Nebuchim all dealing with Tama Mitzvot. But, he sprinkles all of these Tama Mitzvot throughout Mishneh Torah. So, Harambam tries to bring to the surface the underlying motives and the overarching goals of Jewish law. Why should I do this? is the question that you want to ask when you're performing some mitzvah or other. What's the motive behind it? Harambam tries to bring it to the surface, as well as the overarching goals. You should know what the whole picture of Jewish law is all about. What is Jewish law trying to do for us? And Am Israel. And only by knowing the entire corpus of Jewish law will you understand the overarching goals of it. Harambam tries to advance the person who observes the law to ethical and intellectual perfection. For Harambam, this brings the observance of the law to what is viewed as unbounded, quote, unbounded sanctity, pure thought, and a, dis- and a disciplined moral disposition. That's what Harambam wants to produce. Sanctity, thought, and moral disposition. So the emphasis over here for Harambam is on chokhmah, knowledge of the law, and piety. He wants to combine those. So this work effectively changed the entire landscape of rabbinic literature to this very day. It powerfully affected the works of all subsequent halachists and other works of Jewish creativity in all other areas. We're going to um, just skip now to one last statement and end in about three minutes. What is Harambam's legacy? What is he so important? Why do I think that he's the personality that has to be consulted for Jews to survive? Number one, and we'll look at the sources next week. Next week we're going to go through the sources. I want to some of it today, but we're not talking about that. Sources as to why I'm saying what I'm saying. Number one, openness to truth in any and every area. Right? Whatever challenge you are challenged with, whether it's evolution or the age of the universe, Harambam is going to say, get the evidence, determine if it's true, and if it's true, you must follow it, and then do what? Reinterpret the biblical text. Number two, Harambam was confident enough in the human ability to reason and not tell you, how do you know you could come to that conclusion? Who said the world is 12 billion years old? Who said evolution is really true? You think that your reason is sufficient in order to determine that, that conclusion, come to that conclusion? And Obama would say, yes. 
reliance on one's own logic and powers to reason to arrive at truth. Three, seeing that one's service of God must be accompanied with the pursuit of truth as well. God's seal is emet, is truth. You must pursue truth. Harambam further infused Jewish law with an ethical and rational spirit. That is part of the overarching goals of Jewish law. And therefore, Jewish law becomes meaningful in an ethical and intellectual context. And culminating all of that would be Harambam's emphasis on compassion, hesed, kindness, as really one might say, the ultimate motivating factor of Jewish law. Next week we have to look at Moreh Nebuchim. One would want to look at the Rambam's, one might say, magnum opus, one might say his greatest work, the work that he wrote after Mishneh Torah, and look at the very last lines of that work. Very last lines. What are his concluding statements? And there he quotes the, the Pasuk Yimiyahu, Perek, Ted, Pasuk Yudet, Yudgimel, and he says over there, at the end, Wisdom, don't self-glorify in wisdom. And don't self-glorify over your great wealth that you've accumulated. And your great physical prowess, don't self-glorify in that. But you should self-glorify with this. What is the great element I want you to self-glorify? Haskel v'yadoa oti, Yimiao says. Come to know me. Haskel, be wise, doti, keni Hashem. Because I am God, oseh, I am God who wants kindness, justice, and righteousness in the land. That's what I want. So the ultimate motivating factor of Jewish law is Hesed Mishpat Utsakah. This is what God wants. Yemiyahu Perek Tepasuk Yudet is the culminating verse and section of Morei Nebuchim. So that's what the Ram is all about. So to motivate one's behavior by kindness, compassion, and justice is the, la- the lasting legacy of Harambam. One last point. Marvin Fox's book, again, I think it's great reading. Um, we will begin next week with op- by, I guess, reading just one paragraph from Marvin Fox who conceptualizes well why Harambam was so wonderful for his time and why Harambam is so wonderful for our time and why Harambam will be so wonderful for all time. Thank you and good night.